It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. In some ways, it was a lonelier than usual summer here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. Since the Institute was founded in 2006, we've had the privilege of hosting the Summer Seminar on Mormon Culture. It's a remarkable research opportunity that's somewhat legendary for the people that have passed through it. People like Reed Nelson of the Church History Library, Patrick Mason and Kathleen Flake, who hold chairs in Mormon studies at universities on the East and West Coast, and the Institute's own brand new executive director, Spencer Fluman. They've all been through the seminar. Students, scholars, junior faculty, a variety of different people come together to study a particular aspect of Mormon culture or history, and then they write working papers to share some of the things they discovered and to prompt further research. Instead of hosting the seminar this year, the Maxwell Institute hosted a scholar's colloquium in honor of Richard Bushman. He's the Mormon historian who started the summer seminar back when he was working on his biography of Joseph Smith in 1997. Richard's still active in his research, but he'll be leaving the direction of future summer seminars in the capable hands of Terrell Givens and possibly others. So we want to say to Richard, thanks for everything you've done. We look forward to seeing more from you. So again, we didn't hold a summer seminar this year, so let's look back at last year's seminar and get a better sense of what it's all about. I had the chance to get to know many of last year's participants as I sat down with them and talked about their experiences. So we're talking about the Summer Seminar on Mormon Culture in this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And at the end of this episode, you'll hear an announcement about an exciting new feature on the Maxwell Institute website. Questions or comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. I'm Jeff Turner. I have an undergrad in philosophy and religious studies from Washington State University, and I didn't get into Mormon studies until my master's degree, which was at Claremont under Patrick Mason. Jeff found out about the summer seminar through Patrick Mason, and he applied. Participants usually have some sort of interest in Mormon studies, whether from their own background as church members or as academics who study religion. Mormons and people from other faith traditions have participated in the seminar throughout the years. So participants come to the seminar with some interests already in mind. My primary interest coming into it was um, when the first vision starts getting used in proselytizing practices. Um, and I, I'm just interested in, in Mormon conversion as a whole. Um, so this is sort of like the extension of my interest into the 20th century of Mormon conversion. Joseph Smith's first vision has become such an integral part of LDS missionary instruction. The LDS Church uses a manual called Preach My Gospel to help missionaries get on the same page about what they're teaching prospective converts. Unlike the standard missionary discussions, which the Church used to encourage missionaries to memorize, Preach My Gospel encourages LDS missionaries to avoid memorization and recitation, with a couple of exceptions. In fact, one of the biggest exceptions is for missionaries learning other languages. The other big exception pertains to the canonized account of Joseph Smith's first vision. The instructions in Preach My Gospel say, Memorize Joseph Smith's description of seeing the Father and the Son, and always be ready to describe the first vision using his own words. The first vision narrative has taken on such a central role to the Mormon message that it will come as a surprise to many Mormons today to learn that the first vision wasn't always part of the missionary message. Even more interestingly, as Turner laid out in his research, when missionaries and church members would talk about Joseph's first vision, they didn't always talk about it to make the same point. So like in the early church, it's basically Orson Pratt and whoever reads Orson Pratt that picks up on the first vision. And it's not until... 1880-ish, where missionaries really start picking up and, and using it for themselves in sort of a grassroots, bottom-up um, preaching of, of the first vision in their missions. And they use it really diversely. Like um, one guy 
uses it as a model to try and teach a proselyte how to pray properly instead of like, look, this is the way that we know that God and Jesus are two separate beings, or this is how we know that the, the church is restored or something like that. So they just, you know, pick it up and read it and say, oh, well, I like this part about it and use it. So in, in terms of timeline, I think it's it's also really hard to tell because throughout the 19th century, it seems to be that people were talking about the first vision without writing it down or really sort of formalizing it in, in the way that it happens in the 1880s. Yeah. So your concern seems to be more in terms of how it's being used more than the exact when, like you're just right. looking for the different ways. Right. And, uh, and really, you know, in the, in the modern day, it's so central to the missionary. It's the first thing that missionaries talk about. And that was the first thing that I had heard about. And I thought that was kind of a weird thing to start off with, but I guess you get Joseph Smith out of the way and you filter people out and then you're good to go. <laughs> Jeff's interest in this topic stems from his own experience converting to the LDS church. So focusing on conversion in the first vision narrative has a personal dimension for him, given his own conversion to Mormonism just a few years ago. He was 19 years old. He was going to school in Washington. Right. So I, I had slowly been getting to know Mormons throughout my my life, I would say. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, really hands-off of religion, didn't know anything about anything. I, I knew that like Christians believed in Jesus and that was it, you know? Um, and, uh, so I, I didn't really know anything. And, and I figured out in high school that I really missed American culture because of it. Just didn't understand a lot of references and, and a lot of things around me. So it was just by coincidence that I, I started playing rugby in high school. There's a lot of Polynesians in, in San Francisco area. A lot of them happen to be Mormon. And uh, so I, I started chatting with one of my teammates, and he started telling me what a Mormon was. Um, and then when I went off to college, so sort of immediately after that, I, I had a single dorm, uh, single bedroom dorm, but my neighbor, who was basically my roommate, was a Mormon. And I moved in with him the next year into a house of Mormons. <laughs> and then I started dating a Mormon. Um, so it was sort of just inevitable in terms of taking the discussions. They I sucked think. you in. All yeah, right. yeah. Everybody in last year's seminar is a member of the LDS Church, but I think this was probably the group with the most converts to the church. It's a good time to mention that the theme of the 2015 seminar was organizing the kingdom, priesthood, church government, and the forms of LDS worship. Terrell Givens from the University of Richmond is the one who led the seminar, and he's working on a follow-up volume to his book, Wrestling the Angel. It's an overview of LDS theology from a more historical standpoint. Givens' next volume, companion to that book, will look at priesthood and church governance and worship. So if his first book was more about theological ideas, the second one's more about theology-informed practices, like fasting, for instance. In fact, fasting is what Catherine Kitterman decided to focus her research on at the seminar. And early on, participants dig into a bunch of early Mormon documents looking for potential research topics. Okay, my name is Catherine Kitterman. I decided to do fasting in the early church practice, and the thing that I came across first that got me interested in my topic eventually was Oliver Cowdery's Articles of the Church of Christ, which is this document that he was developing based on the Book of Mormon manuscripts um, before the church was organized, trying to outline what the church should do, and a lot of it's just a paraphrase from the Book of Mormon, but there were some interesting parts that weren't. Um, so to give a little bit of background here, Oliver Cowdery served as the scribe during much of Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon, and he served as a sort of right-hand man to Smith in the earliest stages of the church. He was asked to write up some articles for church governance that were later replaced by what's now Section 20 of the LDS Church's Doctrine and Covenants, it's sort of like a handbook of instruction for how the early church would operate. 
one of the things I found interesting was his omission of fasting when he talks about why the church gathers together often. And then also his explanation that, that the church members should meet to, I think he says, speak and tell of their progress toward eternal life. I thought that was an interesting interpolation on his part. That just made me wonder how that played out in practice and what Mormon meetings actually looked like. I hadn't really given much thought to that before. So I came into it because I was interested in why it wasn't talked about in Oliver's articles. Um, Also then just doing simple word searches, seeing that it didn't come up much, it made me wonder how prevalent the practice was. And um, But yeah, then then I just looking through Joseph Smith papers, looking through references, especially to the Kirtland meetings was helpful. But I think it interested me to try and uncover the motivations or reasons behind something that everyone's doing, but nobody's talking about. And of course, that means that anything you say may or may not be true. But I think it's an interesting aspect of lived religion that we've kind of overlooked. So, What kind of things um, do you argue in your paper in terms of how fasting played out? You, you mentioned it wasn't t- discussed often, but there's enough clues there to know it was going on. Right. So Joseph Smith, for example, he never preaches a sermon about fasting. He mentions it only twice in the records that we have. But he called for public fasts on certain days. In Kirtland, we know that there were, for a while, at least monthly fast meetings in the temple. That probably wasn't without his knowledge. And then one really interesting thing to me was a letter from Oliver Cowdery to Joseph Smith. It's while the Book of Mormon's being printed. It's in December 1829. And he talks about all of the things about the progress of the printing and stuff. And he says something about how he just really wants to assure Joseph Smith that he hasn't slackened in his diligence in fasting and prayer. And I thought if Oliver thinks that Joseph thinks it's important, then Joseph probably does think it's important. And he talks later on when he's got a journal that we can look at. He, he says he participates in fast meetings and, and goes to these things. And there are examples of early church members doing stuff. So there's like branches of the church uniting in fasting and prayer, either to know whether or not they should move to Ohio, if that's a true revelation, or to be able to sell their properties before they leave or um, people are fasting to have their days prolonged to see the 12 apostles being called, this kind of thing. But so it doesn't seem like there's one shared understanding of what fasting is. And I found that interesting to look at the broader context of American religious culture, what's going on then. And I think fasting's kind of in flux. And it, Joseph doesn't really seem to be worried by that or have questions about it. But you see certain aspects like the devotional fasting really being centered on God and really being focused on spiritual outpourings and gaining knowledge as opposed to the older tradition maybe which would be the humiliation and repentance for sin and i think that reflects broader shifts in american culture generally but it's interesting that mormons keep fasting when other people don't so one interesting thing i think even in doctrine and covenants 59 the revelation from 1831 we have joseph is he makes the equation there equivalence there of rejoicing in prayer being fasting in prayer and that's interesting given contemporary Americans' rejection of fasting as too ascetic and too Puritan and things. Um, But the heading to that revelation, which is added later, says that it's instructing the saints in the manner of keeping the Sabbath and fasting and prayer and what it was. So there does seem to have been maybe some question about why are we fasting? Yeah, what so are we he doing was here? giving some information about so, that. But yeah. not like a big enough question that he needed to devote much time and attention to it, probably because most people were doing things that he thought were in line with his revelation or his understanding of the gospel. Catherine was one of two women who participated in the seminar last year. Over the course of the seminar, women have made up only about a quarter of the total participants. Here's how Catherine came to be interested. I grew up in Arizona in Flagstaff. I went to BYU for my undergrad and for a master's that was in international relations and then public policy. thought I wanted to save the world doing nonprofit stuff. Um, but while I was in my master's program, I took a couple of church history classes and other things. Um, 
from Grant Underwood, Spencer Fluman. They introduced me to that world. They, I guess, yeah, it's because of them I applied for an internship at Joseph Smith Papers. I ended up working on a different project in the church history department for a year and a half, and then I just finished my first year of a grad program, a PhD program in history at American University. So I come at this Mormon studies thing from a very roundabout angle. Rosemary Demas was the other woman who participated last year. My name is Rosemary Demas. I am a doctoral student in comparative literature at the City University of New York, finishing up there. Um, I was an undergraduate here at BYU in humanities, and that merged into a master's in comparative literature. Then I taught for a few years at a community college, realized I really loved teaching, and that um, even if I wanted to work at a community college, it was hard to do that without a, a doctoral degree. So that was my decision. With her background in comparative literature, she brought particular skills to the table, skills of close reading. She usually would employ on works of fiction, but now she's bringing them to bear on the accounts of actual historical people. And These skills are especially valuable for a group of students who are combing primary records for interesting insights into early Mormonism. The first week or two, Terrell told us to just dive into primary sources. Um, I read a, a ton of diaries and uh, so much from the Joseph Smith Papers project. And then every day we were to come in with an interesting excerpt, just some paragraph, some small tidbit that we had found, and talk about it, why it was interesting, what implications it might have, and possibly use that as a springboard for our paper. So as a side note, I participated in the summer seminar about six years ago. It was 2010, and I still remember it. And it's pretty interesting seeing the sort of brainstorming that goes on in, in early sessions as people try to narrow their focus to a particular topic. I mean, I'm interested in narrative. I'm interested in um, women's experience. And so I was sort of had these vague directional um, research plans. Uh, and And then got into all sorts of distracted uh, lines of research. Um, one of the things that I found, though, that I found pretty early on um, did end up in what is now my, my research project, um, and it had to do with the, the spiritual gifts of the early period um, and how that worked within a community. So I, I read this account of a kind of prophecy gone wrong, um, and there are three different narratives of the same incident. And what was so intriguing to me is that these different narratives were slightly different in tone, um, included different details. And and to me, that's like a gold mine. Like, okay, this is how people understood prophecy and, and how it functioned in their lives. Um, and so that, that one incident then kind of became the center of gravity for what I ended up writing my paper on. Okay, three written accounts. Same spiritual experience, each with a different perspective. This should be good. One is uh, the account of uh, High Council court minutes, and it includes testimonies of various different witnesses uh, because this is really a case of uh, unrighteous dominion, really. Somebody is claiming prophecy and trying to make somebody do things because of it. Um, so there's the minutes court document. Um, and then there's a letter written by one of the women involved in the case, and she kind of writes up her own story version of it. And then there's another count that's in the journal of Joseph Smith, but actually written by George Robinson. So it's from, and it's from his perspective. He doesn't put 
the he doesn't speak in Joseph Smith's per- perspective in that journal entry. Rosemary mentioned that she was drawing sources from the Joseph Smith papers, but the Church History Library has also digitized a lot of other records and put them online where researchers can check them out. There's all sorts of primary sources on early Mormonism available to people, and in some ways the LDS Church has been especially protective of its history in the past. The church archive holdings haven't always been as easy to access, and some of them still aren't, but several participants mentioned being really impressed with how much was actually available. Like this guy, another participant. So I'm Joshua Matson. I'm a PhD candidate in religion at Florida State University. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting in my, my research, first of all, was how accessible the Joseph Smith papers are. We have primary documents that are accessible from anybody's home that has internet access, that we can look at these original documents by Joseph Smith uh, and other church leaders. And without a filter of interpretation. It's the document and the individuals are able to do that. And so time and time again, we've returned to the Joseph Smith Papers website uh, and and the printed volumes to be able to look at texts and original sources and say, let's look at this. Okay, so we'll get back to Joshua in a minute, but let's pause to think for a second about that filter of interpretation that he mentioned. And on one level, there's always a filter of interpretation when you're doing historical research in the sense that the collecting of records itself requires selection on the part of humans. And the Joseph Smith Papers site also has a lot of useful annotations and cross-references to guide researchers, which is another level of interpretation. But at the same time, there are some things in early church records that don't always line up comfortably or easily with the present experience of Mormonism. Rosemary explains. So, I mean, a lot of the experience of the 1830s to me seems foreign, particularly things like speaking in tongues or getting together in meetings where people are prophesying kind of extemporaneously. Um, But I don't want to kind of admit to myself that that's something that's not still theologically a a kind of fundamental of our our belief, that these gifts and and the strength of the Spirit is is still embedded in in our theology. But it's really interesting to think about, uh, as you said, the way that some of these gifts are manifested has definitely changed over time. I think the gift of tongues, like you said, has um, received a lot of attention. And back then it was more of the glossalia unknown language. And today, I think more members of the church would talk about the gift of tongues in terms of missionary work and learning a foreign language or something like right. that. Right. Right. Translating in order to build up the kingdom. Right. So with prophecy, was there a similar shift in, in how uh, do you, in how that's been thought about at all? Um, I think so. I'm, for one thing, it was often connected with the gift of tongues in, in those early days because uh, we don't always talk about the gift of tongues as having as being a two-person project. Um, that there was somebody who would speak and somebody who would interpret, often interpreting as a prophet, you know, a, a prophecy. Um, uh, and so that aspect, I, I can't find any vestige of really, um, right. at least in any practical sense in our in our church practice. Um, uh, but but there is this sense that there's a, a validation of um, subjective experience in the early days of the church uh, that uh, that prophecy can be edifying um, even if you don't quite know what message it exactly is conveying, which is a really kind of interesting idea that there's this uh, kind of fortification of the spirit um, and faith is built up even if you know somebody next to you is prophesying and 
you can't even under- understand what they're saying, you know, but there's this sense of the experience of the gift of prophecy that I think, um, I, I think there are parallels to our experience today, that there's this sense that, you know, what really matters is to feel the spirit and to have that experience of spiritual strength. Um, in, in, not instead of, but in addition to, you know, spelling out uh, points of doctrine and yeah. theology. I'm half tempted to cue up uh, extremes more than words right here, and because uh, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the idea of like there's there's something more than words that is right. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah why not. Okay, um, <clears throat> back to Josh Matson. So I'm Joshua Matson. There he is. Joshua actually specializes in things much more ancient than the other participants. And to find out why, travel back with me to the April 2006 General Conference of the LDS Church. Elder Dallin H. Oaks, an apostle in the church, is speaking about the global reach of Jesus' gospel. The Lord not only manifests himself to all nations, he also commands that they write his words. For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. Furthermore, the Book of Mormon teaches that all of these groups will have the writings of the others. We conclude from this that the Lord will eventually cause the inspired teachings he has given to his children in various nations to be brought forth for the benefit of all people. The finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls shows one way this can occur. This line of thinking that Elder Oaks is laying out in this talk about finding truth in records from different nations and peoples has inspired some of the work that we do here at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, including a Dead Sea Scrolls project. Elder Oaks delivered that talk in 2006. That was the year that the Institute itself was founded, and work on the Dead Sea Scrolls was already underway. This talk was also a spark plug for Joshua Madsen. He was a teenager when he heard it, and he ended up serving a two-year mission for the LDS Church, but that talk had him thinking, and he couldn't forget about it. And now... My focus is in religions of Western antiquity, uh, focusing on late Judaism, early Christianity. Uh, But my research expertise and uh, emphasis uh, for myself is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Joshua was still working on his Ph.D. during the summer seminar, and he saw the seminar as a chance to plug more directly into Mormon studies, something that he's had a peripheral interest in aside from his ancient studies, all the way back to his undergraduate days at BYU. I remember sitting down with Spencer Fluman early on after taking one of his Doctrine and Covenants classes and asking him, how do I do what you do? Uh, and we had a discussion of, of what he's gone through, and, and I started there. Okay, so this interview was a year ago. Since then, Spencer Fluman's been named director of the Maxwell Institute. I thought I would throw that in, another plug to the boss. What about Joshua's research topic? So uh, the topic that I landed on uh, here for the seminar is following Joseph Smith's theology of discerning spirits, uh, with a particular focus on the history 
and interpretation of Doctrine and Covenants, section 129, as we have it now in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, how that applies uh, to a modern society and how it fits within the concept of the broader theology of discernment. Uh, starting as early back with my background in, in ancient religions, uh, I started looking at Jewish texts that talk about uh, the devil appearing as an angel of light, uh, moved through Christian interpretations and the presence of a, a, a single verse in Paul's writings that, that mention the devil as an angel of light um, in appearances, um, and then trace that through the early church fathers and the Reformation and to the contemporaries of Joseph Smith to get an idea of what's this interpretation. Is Joseph just rehashing things that have already been talked about, or does Joseph present a different theology uh, of what this discernment actually means? Before the interview was over, I asked Joshua if there was anything that stuck out to him about the seminar, something surprising that he didn't expect coming into it. And he talked about the fascinating mix of participants. Uh, our group is primarily composed of international students. Uh, and being able to talk with them about their interpretation of how church history has developed from a perspective that's different, particularly in view of the combination of, of uh, the church raising up in America. And we oftentimes talk about the church as an American church, um, but seeing the interpretation and the way in which those who are outside of the United States are able to view the church um, and how we do things, it's really opened my eyes to maybe some of the traditions of my fathers that I need to rethink uh, and really think about how does this look to an international church and how can my behaviors um, as an American in the church um, maybe be a little more discerned uh, as I try to do things um, with the perspective that there might be individuals outside of the United States who might interpret what I write or how I interpret history and how that might affect their own membership within the church. I'm not exactly sure, but I think last year may have been the first year that the seminar included students from other countries besides the United States. More than half of the participants, eight people, came from other countries, like Ben Keo, for example. My name is Ben Keo. I'm from Scotland. Ben said the summer seminar has been great because he gets to meet a lot of people in Mormon studies that he doesn't get the opportunity in Scotland to meet. Just has been a, an experience that is entirely unobtainable in Scotland. It's, it's a different world. Um, I've been able to obviously meet with Terrell every day while I've been here. I've been able to um, meet with people like Adam Miller and Joseph Spencer and Royal Skills and a number of people have just emailed and said, well, can I have a chat? Um, and they've all been very willing, very gracious. It's been a great experience for me. Ben says he puttered around a little bit in school. He was studying psychology at university, but in his spare time, he got drawn into conversations online about his faith on blogs like Juvenile Instructor and By Common Consent. From there, um, I was introduced to a whole new world that I didn't know existed. There's an obvious music cue right there too, but I'll, I'll skip it. For a lot of Mormons who start looking into Mormonism's history, it's kind of like this, a whole new world. Imagine growing up in a great big house and you're familiar with the rooms and the hallways, the furniture layout, the smells, there's that creaky stare that you avoided when you're sneaking out, the way you have to wiggle the key a certain way in the front door to get it unlocked, you know. It eventually, 
You grow up and move away from your parents and they sell the place and years pass, the house is up for sale, you're in the neighborhood, you want to stop by and take a look around. It's a dark night, you sneak in and immediately you run into this couch that was never there before. It's the same house that you grew up in, there's so many familiar things about it, but you stumble around in the dark a little bit because things aren't exactly the same anymore. And Ben's paper looked at early LDS views on the concept of priesthood and the concept of the Holy Ghost and it was sort of like going back into a house and bumping into furniture that wasn't there before. I know the metaphor is a little bit off because the time is reversed, but anyway, just roll with it. But during the course of our classes, Terrell had talked a couple of times about Joseph Smith either conflating or relating the Holy Ghost and priesthood. And in particular, one statement that um, William McIntyre had um, recorded saying, having Joseph say, there is a priesthood with the Holy Ghost. There is a priesthood with the Holy Ghost. Yeah. uh, McIntyre, you said. McIntyre. Is he a, a Scottish guy or? I don't actually know. I don't actually. <laughs> is that know. is that a Scottish name? <laughs> That's a Scot- yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mac, maybe he's yeah. a. So maybe. So, um, in terms of the gist of your paper, um, so it talks about this, the priesthood and the idea of the Holy Ghost sort of being conflated, or sort yeah. of, there there was maybe a time where Joseph Smith was still developing his understanding of the uh, of of these things. Indeed, indeed, um, and so, from there, I found. Um, a couple of other people talking about it, Orson Spencer and his letters, and um, Erastus Snow um, also. Another quote from Joseph, where he said that it takes the Holy Ghost to make and to organize the priesthood. And then I discovered, I just came across some Anglicans talking about the Holy Ghost and that the, the way that the priesthood is conferred is through the Holy Ghost, and you can't confer priesthood any other way. And so... From there, I found Quakers and Presbyterians talking about the same thing. So you're um, taking a comparative approach to see how s- this similar concept is playing out in different religious traditions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my paper will, in the beginning, introduce this is what Joseph said, and then it will look at how priesthood is, ministerial priesthood is transferred, which, as far as I know, hasn't been addressed in, in our church. We, we know that priesthood is conferred by the laying on of hands but it's a, if it's the power of god how does he actually give it to us you know how, yeah um, is there something in you know does the human serve as a mediator force yeah the priesthood rather than, yeah rather than being the priesthood that's kind exactly of a thing. That. yeah yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in thinking about how Mormons have understood basic things like priesthood and the Holy Ghost over time. It seems like something we might see discussed in Terrell Givens' forthcoming book from Oxford University Press. It's his follow-up book to Wrestling the Angel. When we come back from the break, we'll meet four other participants from countries other than the United States. Do you have questions or doubts about your faith? You're not alone. Many faithful members wonder about aspects of LDS Church history, belief, or practice. Everyone needs a reliable and faithful place to work through questions. The Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship and Deseret Book offer such a place in a book called Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt by Patrick Mason. Planted offers an empathetic, practical, and candid perspective for people struggling with questions and people who love those who struggle. Planted is available now at Deseret Book and online retailers like Amazon.com. It's a special episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast talking about the 2015 Summer Seminar on Mormon Culture that was held here at the Maxwell Institute last summer. The next guest is Ezra Steinvorta. He's from the Netherlands, and I asked him how he wound up in Provo. 
Um, hi, my, uh, my name is Ezra Steinforte. I'm uh, from the Netherlands. I uh, have done a bachelor degree in international relations and international organization. And at the moment, I'm in Paris in, uh, at Sciences Po, the university there in grad school, where I am doing a master's in uh, international security with a specialization in the Middle East and in diplomacy. Cool. How about your background uh, as a Latter-day Saint? Um, my parents parents are both converts. Um, they were baptized when they were YSA age. And so me and my siblings were all born in the church. Uh, I've served a mission in Greece. Um, what years did you serve? From 2007 to 2009. So it's already some time ago. Uh, so how did you hear about the summer seminar? How did you come to apply for it? Actually, I heard about it on Facebook. I know, right? It's... Um, it, uh, someone had posted uh, the, the ad, and um, I thought it looked really interesting. Uh, I was looking for something uh, meaningful to do during my during my summer, and uh, this seemed like the perfect opportunity, so, uh, so I applied. Like most of the other participants, he talked about how great it was to work with people from so many different places. I'm actually really excited about the seminar. The, um, everyone has... Uh, all the participants come from different backgrounds, which I think is really interesting. Uh, not just different nationalities, but also different academic disciplines. And so that adds a lot of um, diversity to the group and, and interesting insights and things. Like Josh Matson had said earlier, Ezra talked about how having so many seminar participants from other countries highlighted the American-centric way that a lot of people think and talk about the church. And that's also how he chose his topic. So um, my topic is about the international church, the worldwide church, and uh, I focused a lot on conference reports from LDS um, leaders, what they had said about the church as an international organization, what the general vision was, how, that, how the organization was supposed to be. And one thing I thought was interesting that in the, um, in the second half of the 20th, 19th century, um, there was a lot of discourse on the American church. They, they referred to the church as an American church, and at first that confused me because um, now nowadays we're used to the rhetoric of the church as a worldwide uh, organization. And um, so I studied that a little more, and I discovered that in their minds they felt totally justified to call the church an American church because America at that time was considered as a melting pot of all kinds of different nationalities, uh, not necessarily uh, a nationality of its own. And, of course, that has changed over time, but uh, in that time. Hmm. Um, so it's perfectly justifiable that they... Uh, That's interesting, the way they were using... The phrase American referred to something that uh, today we've the, the politics of the word has changed. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, for sure. How big of a scope does your paper cover? You said you were looking at some 19th century stuff. Do you look at more uh, recent discussions of the church being global? or? Yes, that I look mostly at the recent uh, discussions, but I, I wanted to have an overview as well of the historical developments because one of my main points is that uh, the vision of what the international church should look like has fluctuated over time. It's not as something static and has changed a lot from, from the era where America was considered the melting pot to uh, the time where people were asked not uh, to come to the United States anymore, but to stay in their homelands and, and build the church up, the, up there. Yeah, the idea of the gathering. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Our next two guests make an unlikely pair. Okay, so I'm Michael Ulrich from France. I was born in Strasbourg. 
I'm now living a little uh, more south in Besançon. I am Salvatore Corrado. I was born in Italy, Crotone, in the south of Italy, Calabria. Michael and Salvatore, two guys who collaborated on their paper. I spoke with them together, which was partly for the benefit of Salvatore. Uh, for me, it's very hard to, to speak in English and uh, I, I can understand 70% that <laughs> the, the, the pers- person said in the class, uh, but it's very hard to, to ex- exprime that I want to, to, to say. Before this seminary, this is the first time that I came in the United States. So, and the first time that I I have to speak in English because <laughs> before this seminary, I know English. Uh, how are you? What's your name? And stop. Yeah. But to talk about theological things is very very hard. But uh, Michael is very nice because he he can understand me he can <laughs> he he have a, a, a good <laughs> knowledge of <laughs> of my italian english <laughs> yeah a regular old language barrier can be intensified depending on what you're talking about it's one thing to exchange pleasantries about the weather or something quite another thing to talk about complex theological ideas not to mention these two participants different religious backgrounds both converts to the lds church here's michael so i come from a protestant family and salvatore yeah. comes from a catholic family yeah. i guess that's kind of the enriching part of, yeah. of the fact that we, we are collaborating from very different perspectives somehow how did a former protestant from france and a former catholic from italy wind up in provo utah studying the history of their new and shared faith mormonism both stories actually seem just as unlikely, really. Michael explains his experience first. So I'm a convert myself. Uh, it will be 10 years this year that I joined the church. My first encounter with the church was act- actually 17 years ago when I was in the States for the first time as a 10-year-old boy, and I went through Salt Lake City with my parents. That's how I knew about the church, how I discovered the church. Why Salt Lake? Um, well, as a 10-year-old boy, my parents told me that I got to choose where I wanted to go for vacation. And, you know, a 10-year-old boy dreams of Indians and cowboys. So I said, well, really? I want to see the Western... Uh, see, I dream of Disneyland and uh, beaches. <laughs> but yeah. I'm from Utah, so maybe... <laughs> well, I guess I had many dreams, but these were my prominent dreams. And I guess, you know, in, in Europe, you boys who dream of the States and yeah. and sort that of kind of thing. Frontier things. West kind yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and so I went there, and my father, who had been a Protestant minister for, for some years, told me, well about the questions I had at that time. He told me, well, it's a Christian church and they believe that there are prophets again on the earth today. So it has interested me. And uh, some years later, I began to, to research for myself, to read in the Book of Mormon, and that's how I acquired my testimony. And uh, then I found a church in, uh, in my town in Strasbourg. I went to the missionaries and told them, well, I know it's true, I want to be baptized. <laughs> <laughs> they were you know pretty happy with yeah, that. Yeah, that's pretty rare. <laughs> How about your parents? How did your uh, how did your parents react to that? So they are not yet members, but uh, they reacted quite good to to, to that. And my father liked the church from an intellectual perspective, so he was quite open for my baptism. And now you're here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> for someone who showed such an interest in religion, it's somewhat surprising that it didn't impact directly his academic choices. Doing my PhD studies in mathematics, uh, some area that I call non-commutative probabilities. So I'm listening to him explain this, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, <laughs> uh, every humanity major's worst nightmare here with the math, but Michael loves it. 
I've studied mathematics all my life. I've uh, graduated from the École Normale Supérieure in, in Paris. I've uh, received my master's degree 2012 from uh, the Université Paris in, in Paris. Uh, so apparently nothing to do with Mormon studies, but uh, <laughs> I like the history of the church and I like Mormon studies, so that's the reason why I'm here. And perhaps my link with, uh, with Mormon studies, I participated last year also in the Mormon Theological Seminary in, uh, in London, and I guess that was my first experience in the field. I remembered Michael from that seminar. He'd written a really nice guest post on the Maxwell Institute blog about his experience there. And he was the only math specialist in the group. Salvatore's story, his Catholic background, are quite different from Michael's. I have a bachelor in Catholic theology, and I was uh, a monk in the past. You heard that right. Salvatore was a Catholic monk in the past. And I study a lot of Catholic Church and Catholic theology. I joined in the church in uh, five years ago, in 2010. Uh, and how did you come to the LDS Church? How did you learn about it? Oh, okay, it's a it's a strange story and very long, but <laughs> but uh, it's the strange things that when I studied. Catholic theology, I have a lot of question in my mind about the 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 truth of this doctrine, because there are some things that uh, I can saw in the Bible, but I can saw in uh, Catholic uh, life. So uh, these these things uh, push me to ask uh, to do a lot of question. In myself and one time I received uh, a lot of, of answer about the the Holy Spirit uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit and um, this pushed me to search the, ch the church and when I found the church uh, I have uh, a biggest spiritual experience that uh, said me you have to to go in this church and so salvatore exited the convent he left the catholic church and he joined the lds church but how would other monks and other catholics handle that i asked him about this i, th I thought of how a latter-day saint might fare if they joined another church was salvatore shunned was he supported what kind of reaction uh, no, a lot of people that work with me or in my in my uh, parrocchia in Italian par church yeah. or branch, mm -hmm. but Catholic parish. branch <laughs> parish. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a lot of people in my parish was uh, uh, very friendly with me. Also now, and she sustained me and helped me in s in a lot of things that I can come in this church and I have a good good experience for them and today we we meet we we talk about the church we we talk uh, with very good friends so one day early on in the seminar Michael and Salvatore are sitting there listening to Terrell Givens and and Terrell told the group about a little known statement from Joseph Smith Joseph was speaking about various Christian groups, Protestants, and he said, the old Catholic Church is worth more than they all. When Terrell 
read the this this sentence of Joseph Smith, the whole Catholic Church is uh, worth more than yes. All. Yeah. And my mind starts to uh, to appear the communalities and uh, the similarities of the two the two church. So I decided to go in this way and I started to wrote some things about the salvation of the dead, the um, uh, communalities with the, uh, endowment and Easter vigil or um, bap- Catholic baptism, baptism and uh, um, initiatory in the temple. Michael was intrigued even further when he found out about some books that Joseph Smith owned. I, uh, I learned that Joseph Smith had two Catholic manuals in his possession. So I began to read them. And uh, by reading them, I was uh, quite stricken by the fact that there are some commonalities, uh, as Salvatore described, uh, with the initiatory and, and with other aspects. And so I thought, well, that's very interesting. And up to my knowledge, nobody has studied these Catholic books that Joseph Smith had. So that might be the subject of a paper. So because they were both interested in the same topic, and also Michael could help Salvatore with the language, that became the subject of their paper, the Old Catholic Church, as Joseph Smith called it, and Mormonism. Now about those books, I mean, scholars are rarely sure that Joseph Smith read any particular book that was in his possession at any point, but Michael was intrigued by some of the similarities between the Catholic ritual of unction, for example, and some of the LDS temple rituals. Where some people might notice parallels and assume direct borrowing, Michael, himself a believing Latter-day Saint, instead saw something about the nature of revelation in Mormonism. I wasn't aware that there were these very close connections. And um, and I think that must have been appealing for Joseph Smith as he was trying to restore the ordinances. Um, that surely prompted questions in his mind. And then that was just, you know... A, um, good environment where the Holy Ghost could give him the revelation. So by whatever means, God gave him the revelations about how to restore those ordinances. As Brigham Young would say a couple of years later, wherever truths are, well, that belongs to Mormonism somehow. And that's the process of restoration, gathering out these truths through this divinely appointed process. Now, focusing on commonalities between religions is perhaps an exercise that scholars of religion are more likely to do than most people. And for Salvatore, it was especially unusual because of the context in which he joined the church. In Italy, Catholic Church is diabolic for members for the church. Here is not not diabolic, <laughs> but... Uh, okay, so the view <laughs> of the church there in Italy is rather negative. Yes. For, because for it's for like the close LDS to home, members, it's Italy, right? Yes, for the LDS members, Catholic Church is very uh, not good. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people probably have ties to it. Like, they might have formerly been yes, part of the but, church. or yeah. But here, I can saw in the seminary and in, in the youth, uh, I can saw that... Uh, it's not in this. Uh, it's not like Italy, but here Catholic Church and LDS Church is very uh, connect in the humanitarian humani- humanitarian uh, humanitarian yep. activities and yeah. and other things. And also in the seminary, I can saw that each of my colleague can talk about Catholic Church in his work about some some aspects of other other aspects and this is interesting because in Italy if i talk about catholic church in our church oh you want to 
take Catholic Church in our church. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. you was a priest. Yeah, yeah. You're bringing your Catholicism here. Yes. I guess it's easy to forget how local the LDS church can be when members think of the church as this unified whole that's always on the same page everywhere. In one setting, thinking positively about the Catholic Church has much different stakes than in another setting. Our final guest in this episode joined me by Skype a few weeks after the seminar concluded, and he spent the last several years of his academic career studying the cultural and organizational dynamics of Mormonism. I am Hans Note, living in the Netherlands. Hans Note was the oldest participant in last year's seminar. He has a long history of service within the LDS Church. He's been in several stake presidencies. He's served as a stake president, branch president, which are ecclesiastical positions in the church. And he started the seminary program in Poland when the wall came down. He's taught in Ireland, and he's more recently involved in the seminary program in Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and Italy. He has academic degrees, including a master's in organizational behavior, which he received here at BYU, and his schooling continues. Now he's studying organizational anthropology. Currently, I'm doing a PhD in organizational anthropology at the Tilburg University in the Netherlands. What is that degree about organizational anthropology? Um, organizational anthropology is the study of uh, how cultures are affected by organizational leadership and organizational change and how the two interact. So leadership strategy and leadership decisions will have cha will change uh, culture. And cultures, of course, influence leadership decision-making. And what I study is the interaction between the two. Hans's dissertation focuses on religious transference. This is looking at how LDS communities are shaped within a backdrop of European cultures or whatever culture that they're in. This is what we saw with Salvatore in the Catholic Church, the ways that people thought about it at home versus what he found here in the United States, the different contexts. Basically what I'm studying is, is how uh, the LDS faith uh, has a central doctrine and a central teaching style, and yet the message comes across in different European cultures differently. So are the French Mormons look at the doctrine and the church in a different way than the American Mormons and different than German Mormons and different than Dutch and English Mormons. And I'm looking at how that works. And religious transference, of course, is uh, in two ways. There's uh, missionizing uh, converts. And the other one is, of course, uh, uh, religious transference within families through the generations. And I'm looking at both aspects and, and looking at, at the reasons why French Mormons are different and Dutch Mormons. And what I'm finding is that their religious roots, so in France that will be Catholicism, and in the Netherlands that will be Calvinism, in Germany that will be Lutheranism, how those religious roots play a very important role in the way we understand uh, the religion that we adopt. So that makes me a Calvinist Mormon because I live in the Netherlands. <laughs> so, yeah, explore that difference a little bit. So what what would be some really interesting differences between, like, uh, say, a typical American Latter-day Saint and a uh, uh, member of the church, a Dutch member of the church? Uh, let me give you a little example of a Spanish lady that came to me a couple of weeks ago here in the Netherlands. She's She's been a member all her life. Actually, she is. I think she's a third generation. And she confided in me almost secretly 
looking around as if, you know, making sure that nobody was seeing that she was saying this. And she confided in me that, um, you know, she finds it very difficult to not pray to Mary once in a while. And she's been an active, very active Latter-day Saint. And so she still has this practice in her thinking. Uh, Dutch Mormons uh, are very opinionated and moralistic and uh, feel responsible to a much higher degree than, for example, Catholic Mormons. Uh, and Catholic Mormons, they find uh, traditions more important than Dutch Mormons. Uh, Catholic Mormons, for example, find it more difficult to understand that going to church on a weekly basis is part of the practice. Because in a, in a Catholic tradition, going to church once in a while is good enough. And Lutheran Mormons are, you know, they're more organized uh, because, you know, organization in Lutheranism and uh, doing it right and perfectionism is very important to German Mormons. So that's how religions play out in our understanding of the gospel. So you'd ask a Dutch Mormon what Mormonism should be about, and he thinks it is about morality and it's about responsibility. You ask a Catholic Mormon and he, you know, he talks about traditions and about rituals and about the sacrament. You ask a German Mormon and he talks about how the organization of the church should be perfect. And he talks about the handbook and he talks about organizational perfection. Uh, these are some, of course, easy cross-cultural uh, aspects. Uh, there's much more to it. But what I'm finding is that if you want to explain Mormonism to these cultures, you have to understand these cultures. Hans said that his studies and coming to understand different cultural environments where the LDS Church exists has made him come to value the idea of religious freedom all the more. And I believe that if we want to have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints grow in Europe, we have to start by accepting and even, and not even tolerating, but celebrating the fact that there's other religions in Europe. And we have to be the example of religious freedom. Um, helping people to grow in their faith, uh, even though we don't agree with them. And, and that is, in, of course, in many ways that, that's about all religions and all the beliefs. Uh, we do not believe in atheism, but I have high respect for atheists who live to, up, up to their conscience. Um, and I've learned that over the years, and also as part of this research, it has helped me to understand better that there's more ways to uh, to look at religion than just our own. That doesn't mean to say that I don't believe in Mormonism. It just means to say that I have respect for others. I find the study of international Mormonism to be fascinating. It's a subject that's become increasingly pressing for Mormon studies. For example, the recent issue of the Maxwell Institute's Mormon Studies Review includes international scholars talking about research on international Mormonism. Greg Covert Books has published several books on the church in different parts of the world. Patrick Hugh Mason recently edited a book called Directions for Mormon Studies in the 21st Century, and three of its 12 chapters focus on the LDS Church around the world. And the authors propose that the church is still largely an American institution, especially culturally, even though there are fewer members in the United States than elsewhere. And so the work that happens at the summer seminar often fits well within wider Mormon studies discussions, and then also religious studies more broadly. And that's one of the reasons the Maxwell Institute's been so happy to host the summer seminar each year since 2006. And as we seek to enrich Latter-day Saint scholarship, and also to contribute to the academic study of Mormonism, the summer seminar on Mormon culture provides great training ground for up-and-coming scholars. 
I'm happy to announce that the Institute's website has a new page on it dedicated to the summer seminar. If you go to mi.byu.edu slash summer seminar, you'll find an archive of many of the papers that have been written for the seminar since 2006 when it first came to the Institute. You'll find some information about the history of the summer seminar and, and in the future some information about how to apply yourself. So go to mi.byu.edu slash summer seminar and there you'll find all of the papers that we talked about in this episode today, as well as papers from past summer seminar years. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please do me a favor and rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps people learn about the show. We're trying to grow the audience. And I guess we might as well let Extreme take us out today. I'm Blair Hodges, and we'll see you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Oh yeah, by the way, I guess that's episode 50 of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Here's to 50 more. If I took